Hi, I'm Chris Wigley, CEO of Genomics England. I've spent my career at the intersection of technology, ethics, and human stories. Now I lead the amazing team here at Genomics England. We're trying to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone. And that involves accelerating genomic research and also working with the NHS to bring genomics into the heart of healthcare. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. And there are some myths out there. So we want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the G word. It's my pleasure to welcome to the G-Word today, Dr. Ben Goldacre. Ben, you're a man with many hats. You're a doctor, a journalist, an academic, a writer, a broadcaster. You have an intimidating number of followers um, on Twitter. You've also, in an entrepreneurial way, set up lots of different endeavors. All trials uh, open safely. You chair lots of stuff in the government. Apart from asking when you sleep, um, we're going to talk about lots of other topics today. Welcome to the pod. Hey, thanks for having me. If we start maybe just with a bit of context, take us back to kind of five-year-old Ben, you know, muddy knees. How do, how do we get from there to Ben Goldacre with 450,000 Twitter followers? Well, I suppose if you're going back to five, the, the tragic story about the extent of my personal privilege is that I have a dad who is literally a professor of epidemiology, so basically does the same thing that I do. And my mum was a, a stage performer. She was a singer in a group called Fox. Got to number three in England and number one all over Europe. Wow. Okay, we're going to have to try and link to this in the show notes now. <laughs> anyway, so insofar as I have been in my life a stage epidemiologist, all I've really done is fuse my parents to um, two careers. So I always expected to be a neuroscientist when I grew up. I got very interested in neuroscience when I was at school and read lots of pop science books. This is back in the day when if you wanted to access knowledge, you had to find a physical object that contained the information, like a book. Well, hold on, hold on. (laughs) (laughs) I've blown the mind of everyone under the age of 35. For our younger listeners, we'll put notes in the show notes, so the link to the Wikipedia entry for book. (laughs) And then, uh, again, sort of being very lucky and growing up in Oxford, where I still live and work, um, I had a conversation with Colin Blakemore, who was professor of neuroscience, and he said, it's great if you want to be a neuroscientist, but do medicine as an undergraduate degree, because then you retain your pluripotency for longer. Ooh, there's a $10 word. <laughs> pluripotency is a cell, a, a cell, a, an embryonic cell that can turn into any kind of specialist later. So I went to medical school and then um, really got distracted by it, decided that I loved it. Um, I stopped halfway along and went off and did a bit of work campaigning for liberty, did a neuroscience research job, uh, did a master's in philosophy of mind, then went back, did clinical, um, fell in love with psychiatry as the most challenging place to implement evidence-based practice. So um, I trained in medicine at Oxford and London, then trained in psychiatry at the Maudsley, and then trained in epidemiology at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And along the way, got interested in talking to the public about um, evidence-based medicine and stats. So the thing that I guess I'm publicly most known for is that I wrote the Bad Science column in The Guardian for a decade, did a book called Bad Science that got to number one in the bestseller charts and uh, other books, Bad Farmer and uh, 
uh, the one with the appalling sanctimonious title, I think you'll find it's a bit more complicated than that. Um, <laughs> and all along my shtick there was using examples of people getting issues of evidence and statistics wrong as excuses to talk about basic methodological principles. So, you know, when I when I write a takedown of a Times front page that says that the use of cocaine in playgrounds is doubling, when I'm explaining the statistical error that drives that, the thing that I'm interested in doing is explaining the importance of correcting for clustering in data rather than the fact that the Times had a stupid front page story that was wrong. Like, I don't really care about whether cocaine use has doubled in the playground. I mean, I kind of do. But principally, it's an excuse to talk about clustering, about Bonferroni corrections, about what uh, stratification is and all of these other um, statistical issues. Well, there's a there's a quantum thing there as well. It's like it's gone from one reported case ten years ago to two reported cases, <laughs> so you know whatever. Yeah. So yes, statistical power. You know all of the different statistical concepts that you can have. An you can always find an excuse to explain a, an interesting statistical or methodological principle by attaching it to an example of somebody getting it wrong in a position of power and authority, whether it's a newspaper journalist, a minister, a drug company. Uh, a quack or, or PR person or, or whatever. So in fact, our, our former Secretary of State and former uh, guest on this podcast, Matt Hancock, got slated on Twitter when he got a polygenic risk score from, I think it was from Genomics PLC, and tweeted sort of, this could be life-saving because it's highlighted that I'm, I can't quite remember what it was. I think he said I, I've uh, double the risk of prostate cancer or something. Yeah, it was 17% risk of prostate cancer versus the 14% risk. Yeah, exactly. And so if you're someone who is trying to get their heads around a report like that, whether you're the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, whether you're a regular uh, member of the public who happens to be sick or happens to have a sick kid, apart from reading your books, what else should people do to try and, you know, get their heads around what can seem like quite confusing? You know, it's a, it's a probability of a probability of, you know, something that may or may not happen, like, at a human level, how can people best try and get their heads around that kind of thing? Look, we could talk about this for the whole of the rest of our life. <laughs> yeah, and that is partly the challenge. I mean, first up, if you want to really evaluate a given scientific claim, then there is no shortcut around the fact that you need to understand the basic methods of the study that you're thinking about. And there's no there's no way around that. So, you know, for for years, I, I, you know, you kind of trod, you, you trudge around American local radio station interviews when you're pushing a book there and they go, hey, so Dr. Golicker, tell me, what are the three things that will tell you something's bad science? And, and you kind of go, <laughs> well, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not really like that. You, you know, you do have to get stuck into the details. I mean, the, the context, I think, that's interesting that has changed over the last 10 or 15 years is that when I was doing the bad science column, um, there was much more of a sense of the media being a single source of truth. And so individual stupid things, individual stupid claims in the media had much more penetrance because there were fewer claims in the public sphere and they always came from a place of authority. But the other interesting bit of context that I think has shifted is, I mean, this is going too deep too soon, right? But it feels to me with the rise of things like QAnon, very deep uh, anti-vax conspiracy theories and so on, that um, there were a lot of shortcomings with the media, but a single source of truth at least made a better target for for um, remediary corrections. You know, the hodgepodge that we see now is is vast and overwhelming, and and actually a lot of the 
a lot of the language and behaviours in a very superficial way of the debunking movement have now been adopted as rhetorical techniques by the anti-vax movement and so on. And so um, it's, a, it's a much more complicated and interesting rhetorical space in which to operate now. But anyway, so... I did a load of shit. Sorry, I feel like I've I feel like I've put you on the psychiatrist couch. Here, you know, <laughs> how do you how do you, how do you feel about? Did you ever actually practice as a psychiatrist with sort of someone lying on a couch and? Oh yeah, yeah. So everything, um, all of my showing off activities, like writing books and stage shows and bits of radio and telly, were all. Um, it was always only ever a hobby. I've I've nearly always had either a full time clinical post or a full time academic post. Um, so then in 2015, I hit CCT and psychiatry. I was fully cooked. You know, CCT means certificate of completion of training, and then you can become a consultant in the NHS. Um, and I came to Oxford in 2015 on a grant that covered me and one other person and set up something called the Data Lab. Uh, and we've basically doubled in size each year. So there's now about 40 of us. And we're quite an unusual group in the sense that we are a truly mixed team of software developers traditional academic researchers and clinicians and policy wonks. And we take very large health and scientific data sets and we turn them into academic papers, of course, because that's the sort of that's the core output of academic work. But we also um, turn those large data sets into live, interactive, data driven tools and services. So we produce things like um, the trialstracker.net projects where we're interested in whether people are reporting their clinical trials or not, because that's an important source of bias. And as you mentioned earlier, I set up the all trials campaign to encourage people to report the results of their clinical trials to ensure that the evidence that doctors and patients are using to make decisions is all present and all complete. But when we publish a paper on whether people overall are or are not publishing the results of their clinical trials, we don't leave it at that. We don't just publish a paper in British Medical Journal or The Lancet. We also publish a large interactive dashboard online that updates every week where everybody can see everybody else's performance with respect to meeting their legal requirement to publish their trial results. Um, similarly, I work on prescribing data. If you go to openprescribing.net, you can see for any GP practice in the whole of England uh, exactly what they're prescribing month by month. You can break it down by brand, by chemical, within class. You can look at opportunities to improve the quality, the safety, and the cost effectiveness of your prescribing. We published evidence showing that in practices where they start looking at the data, their prescribing behavior changes and improves. We've got thousands of subscribers to the service and they get notifications that use really cunning and clever data science techniques under the bonnet to tell them about the prescribing behaviors they might want to look at. But as far as they're concerned, it's just a nice, easy top five list of things that they can look at. And all of that's only really possible because we have software developers who understand NHS data and understand uh, academic research using health data. And on the converse side, we have traditional academic researchers who understand how to write a line of Python, who understand what GitHub is, who know how to work alongside software developers. And very lastly, the most recent project that we've done is Open Safely, which is, I think, it, it's certainly um, the UK's largest ever electronic health record research platform, but I think probably the world's largest ever. And that's um, a, a data analysis platform that allows you to run statistical analyses and um, and reports on activity and outcomes in the NHS for people improving commissioning of services across the entire GP records of 58 million patients, um, which is then variously linked onto things like 
hospital episodes data, death data, COVID vaccine data, COVID infection data, that sort of thing. And that's got uh, people doing research in it from uh, about a dozen different universities and different parts of the NHS. Uh, so it's not just a, it's not a private thing for our group. It's a, a platform for everyone to use. So that's, that's my potted CV. Very cool. And um, yeah, back to back to lots of hats. So as someone who's a practicing academic, as you say, at Oxford since 2015 with the Data Lab, what's the spur to go beyond, as you put it, the kind of core currency of academia of publishing academic papers to these other kinds of activities? You mentioned that in your earlier days, you'd done some sort of campaigning for groups like Liberty. Is, is this part of that sort of campaigning spirit? Um, or what's the what's the spur to kind of generate these kind of tools and um, communities and so on that you've just described? Well, I think um, people often talk about the perverse incentives of academia, like people get too caught up in process outcomes, like how many papers or what is your H index, which is a measure of how many citations you've got for a certain number of papers. And I think that's, uh, I think that's a really valid critique of the academic world. I think, I think people have got so caught up in chasing metrics of performance that they've in some cases, forgotten what the overarching objective is, which to my mind is um, doing everything you can with the skills and the resources available to you, in my case, particularly data and people who know how to work with data, um, to reduce suffering and death. Um, and if you wanna reduce suffering and death, you don't do that by depositing a PDF in a journal archive that gets read by eight people. You've gotta go out there and have penetrance in the real world, you've gotta got change activity and behavior. Now, there are traditional narrow ways of doing that, like you do a trial on one drug, you find out how well it works, and then you tell everyone the answer and people start using it or stop using it, depending on what the finding was. But upstream of that, there's also a huge amount that you can do and that I have always felt is sort of quite neglected and under-resourced and under-incentivized around improving really the information architecture of evidence-based medicine. So the overall objective is collect great data, curate it well, identify what works best, identify where people aren't doing the things, aren't using the treatments that work best and try and give them feedback to improve their behavior. You know, it's that kind of beneficent cycle of using data at every, every step of the journey and also using the systems that we have like electronic health record platforms to their greatest potential. So, you know, we wanted to, fix the problems that we saw in the structures of how data flows around the system and not just fix them for us, but also fix them for everybody. And insofar as my CV is particularly useful for that, it's really, frankly, that I have outside options. So you feel less nervous about having, you know, the, the size and shape of your H index, so to speak, because, you know, if that doesn't work out, you can do something else or whatever. Do you feel less? Yeah, absolutely. So, my, I mean, my, as it happens, my H index is fine. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> but fundamentally, it's about resourcing. So the thing that all academics need is money to pay their staff. There are hundreds of places I can go from MRC, NIHR, Welcome, everyone else to get money to do single individual research papers with my name on them, with my group. I wouldn't say it's like falling off a log, but there are hundreds of places I can go. And we've been very successful at getting money from those conventional routes. If I want to build a platform for everybody to use, there is nowhere to go. There is no one to ask. 
if I want to build a service like Open Prescribing that takes prescribing data and makes a platform for every doctor and every local commissioner to see what they're doing, there is no open competitive source of funding. There's only special arrangements by pestering and negotiating. And even then, that's capricious and arbitrary and time consuming and infuriating. So what I've had to do is get money for research projects in prescribing data and then literally legally and within the limits of what is acceptable, repurpose that money to build the platform. Similarly with Open Safely, we had no money to build it. We just went out and did it at the beginning of the pandemic. And I got um, I got people doing things for free, knowing that I would have to find money to pay them later and took a punt. Um, I think you can you can only fight against the perverse incentives of the system and perverse resourcing decisions of the system in that way if you have a degree of confidence that if it all goes horribly wrong, you've got other options as an individual. Yeah. That's fundamentally what it comes down to. So, yeah. you know. To have the to have the confidence to do that. So can you maybe bring this to life for, with an example for us? And then I want to come back to Open Safely and Trust in a second. But um, I love the the line you've just drawn from. Interesting academic question. Get Get the funding by hook or by crook to kind of explore it pull together a bunch of different data sets to do that research, create some kind of tools that are interactive and kind of ongoing to sustain that. Just give us a sense of how those how those things play out. Does it start with a sort of aha moment in the shower of like, oh, we should ask this question. How do you establish that anyone wants to, um, you know, log on and filter all of the prescribing data? You know, how do you establish, I guess we might say in, you know, tech startup mode kind of product market fit, so to speak. So look, I'll, I'll give you a really clear example with the Open Safely platform. But before we get there, just thinking about creativity in science and creativity in, in platform development. Um, I think coming up with a good idea for a paper or for a platform, it, it, that it, it's quite a similar challenge. And it's very much like scrap heap challenge. So it's very easy in research to say, if I had two billion pounds, I could do the perfect study on anything. But actually... What you've really got is, uh, you know, some some empty plastic barrels that will float in the water and a couple of rusty nails and some bits of wood. And you've got to get across the river somehow. Right. So it's like MacGyver or the A-team. You know? <laughs> yeah. So so the equivalent in data world is, well, I could go out and bespoke collect an enormous amount of data by interviewing 100,000 people. However, what I've got is. Uh, a one-year-old copy of the hospital episode statistics that my friend downloaded from NHS Digital. I've got GP data for a small number of patients, but it only covers these fields. And I can probably do a questionnaire on about 400 people. And how can I how can I crowbar those things together to make something that's useful? So you're always thinking, with the materials available to me, what can I do? And that leads on, I think, to the importance of having software developers in your team. So I am absolutely baffled by the extent to which it is not normal in the community of people who do research with health data to employ full stack commercial grade software developers who know how to um how to do a back end how to do a front end how to how to work on on large projects who know what a product manager is who know how to build these kinds of tools and services because fundamentally all data curation and analysis is done by writing code all quantitative research is done by writing code. Software is eating scientific research. And if, you're, if all your work ultimately revolves around writing code, you really ought to have some people on your team 
whose abiding fundamental reason for living is being really great at writing software. You don't want only people like that, but you definitely need them to, to be on your team. So we employ lots of software developers and we invest a lot of time in acculturating them, onboarding them, essentially teaching them what NHS data is, how, how the NHS works, what epidemiology is. Um, and when you've done that, then you have people who can be part of the intellectually creative team that are developing projects and services. They know what's quick and easy and what's painfully impossible. They know what the overarching objectives of the projects are or what the general themes of what you're trying to do are. And so then you've got people who are fundamentally epidemiology researchers, but know a bit about software. So they can be creative within those constraints. They know they, they instantly self-censor stupid ideas and tend more to come up with things that are at least achievable. Then you've got developers who um, can do the same trick, but with an emphasis on understanding software, but know enough epidemiology, enough of what doctors want to achieve, enough of what uh, NHS England analysts are interested in to know how to be creative in that space. And then you've got folk like me who can write a line of Python, but Jesus, you wouldn't want to wait for me to finish uh, 10 lines in a day because I'd have to Google every comma. Um, but I know a fair amount about all of it. So the kind of, you know, the overarching picture. And then you can be creative. And so what's interesting about that as well is once you've come up with a good idea, they're really more nickable than almost any other idea in the whole of scientific research, I would say, which is a problem when the resources are uh, badly allocated um, by the centre. But, you know, that's another story. So in amongst all of that, you also do, to a greater or lesser extent, formal user research. But you don't get sort of bogged down and paralyzed in going, okay, let's have a bunch of focus groups with a bunch of committees about what they want. Because as Henry Ford said, if you do that, people tell you they want faster horses and you're the only one who knows that cars are possible. So you've got to be to a degree opinionated, build things, but also we follow, not in a sanctimonious way, but we do follow agile working practices in the sense that we have an idea, we build a prototype, we don't hide it, we stick it up, we say, have a go at this. That is also in turn an amazing way of attracting good people to work with. So open prescribing, which now has 185,000 unique users a year, about 20,000 unique users a month, thousands of subscribers. We put up the prototype of that after about six weeks of one developer working on it. Immediately, it started getting users and traction. One of the earliest emails that we got, and we have a Slack channel in our team, which automatically gets all of the incoming emails from or any of our public facing email addresses. So we can all see it and we make a real point of being open to the outside world. One of the first emails we got was a chap called Richard Croker, who was the head of prescribing in uh, Devon in the Southwest across two clinical commissioning groups in the NHS. And he said, hey, this is great, but your measure of, of this statin, uh, mild and moderate statins is, is completely rubbish. You could do it much better if you did it this way, this way and this way. To which I replied, Okay, great. Well, do you want to come in and have a chat? If you like, I could, you know, can you write any code? Basically, I said, if you think you could do better, come in and write the JavaScript to make it better yourself. To which he said, bloody great. And so now he can write a Jupyter notebook. He can write uh, code to build this stuff and is responsible for large parts of, of the infrastructure. And he didn't know, you know, he couldn't write a line of basic on a BBC Model B when he first came to us. Um, you know, similarly, 
again, another clinician, Brian McKenna, who was working in the office of the chief pharmacist at NHS England, got seconded to us to learn a little bit about data science for six weeks um, in 2017. And we've essentially not given him back. Um, he now, uh, you know, writes Jupyter notebooks, which are um, best practice for open science. You write code and you can see the outputs of code alongside it. Um, so working very much in the open, working iteratively and working as a team where you've got software developers genuinely pooling skills and knowledge alongside researchers gets you a long way. And, you know, part of why I got roped into doing the Goldacre Review for Secretary of State on how we can get better, broader, safer use of data. That was all about, you know, what's the current landscape of skills mix and activities and incentives and resources across the system? And how can we start to get people perhaps thinking in a more computational way about research because what we've got in 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 the uk today i think is an absolutely world-class set of researchers doing individual single standalone research papers and individual standalone research projects what what we're really lacking is essentially platformologists people making platforms for everybody else to use and we're also slightly strategically held back by the fact that there are quite a lot of people who have managed to assert ownership of the platform space and who haven't delivered brilliantly always in that um, in that territory. But that's partly because it's always been regarded as a rather low status, hidden black box activity. Whereas when I say platformology, I really mean it. I think, you know, I mean, apart from the fact that I've literally spontaneously invented that terrible new word in this podcast, you need to make the whole um, the whole class of activity around curating data, making it securely available, making it efficiently processed. That is a set of very deep methodological innovations embodied in code that is well documented, that is open and shared. It cannot be a black box procurement where you go, oh, OK, they've just done all of that for us. And now yeah. and now Barbara's uh, done a paper in it. And that's the proof that it exists. You know, you want to see under the hood the whole process of making a platform is the interesting challenge. And that's been catastrophically neglected, especially in the space of electronic health records research and less so in genomics. And so you are very lucky um, to work in the field. Well, it's, it's interesting. The the tagline for the strategy that we developed after I arrived at Genomics England in 2019, which was all around how do we build on, how do we sustain, continue with and build on the sort of founding projects of Genomics England, the 100,000 Genomes project, the strapline for that was from project to platform. A lot of people gave us the feedback, like, Ugh, exactly as you're saying, like, what are you talking about? Genomics England shouldn't be a platform. That's just, you know, that's, you know, you're not e you're not eBay. <laughs> you know? um, yeah, I want the I want the papers. Show me the papers. Yeah, and and yeah, that's exactly what you want. You know, like randomized controlled trials were invented a very long time ago. I mean, you could argue there's almost one in the Old Testament. Um, no, New Testament. But anyway, uh, I'm I'm splitting hairs. Um, you know, the challenge with randomized trials these days is not really do some individual randomized trials. The challenge with randomized trials is can you make a production line where you are identifying clinical uncertainty wherever it arises in the health service and randomizing people so that you're constantly iteratively understanding to an ever greater level of accuracy the relative merits and disadvantages of different treatments within a given class you know it, it we're not interested in whether you've made a car we're interested in whether you've made a production line that can produce tens of thousands of cars really quickly and efficiently and it's the same for working with electronic health records to process them into 
dashboards that can be used to identify problems in clinical care that can be fixed. It's, um, you know, can you set up really good, efficient platforms that can be used for dozens of research projects, not just your own? And so that's what we set out to build in, in Open Safely. So I want to talk about Open Safely a bit more, and I want to talk about trust, which is a sort of recurring recurring theme on this podcast, as you can imagine. We're collectively, I guess, as the health and genomics kind of ecosystem, asking um, for a lot of trust from people. Um, they they consent share their data for their clinical uh, pathway. They consent share their data for research. They consent um, to give literally give their blood and so on. We try to think a lot about earning trust and being trustworthy. And I, I love that on the Open Safely website, the, there's a bold statement on this, which is Open Safely does not rely on an assumption of trust. It aims to be provably trustworthy. Tell us a bit more about that. How can we how can we be provably trustworthy in this space? So to think about that, you need to think about what electronic health records look like and what the privacy risks are around them. So every time you go and see the GP, pretty much every big action that they take will result in one row of structured data in your electronic health record. There's one row for every prescription, one row for every diagnosis, one row for every blood test, one row of data for every uh, um, referral letter to hospital services. And it's by working with that data, by processing it, that we can start to understand, for example, during COVID, which diseases put you at highest risk of admission and death from COVID? Uh, which diseases put you at risk of your vaccine not being as effective as it is for everybody else? Which particular clinical or demographic groups are at highest risk of complications of diabetes and so on? The challenge is to work with that data, you have to have access to it all in one place to a greater or lesser extent so that you can run some statistical analysis code across it. Now, the historic approach to giving researchers access to this data has been essentially to bundle it all up in one place, take the names and addresses of each row, replace it with a pseudonymous identifier like A139764232 instead of um, your name, and then let people download it on the basis that it's been pseudonymized and therefore it is secure, your privacy is protected. Now, Pseudonymization is actually quite a weak form of protection of people's privacy in reality. Um, if you want to, with somebody's detailed electronic health record, you can very quickly, in many cases, re-identify them. You'd be a malicious actor. You'd be doing something illegal, but it's very easy to do. And, that's, and let's just be clear about how you do that. You effectively filter someone and say, right, I'm looking for, I know that Ben is in a... I'm guessing you're what, 25, 27? Um, you know, I know he lives in Oxford. Um, he, I'm making it up, has asthma. Um, and I know that he's he's prescribed that. You know, you filter down to... Yeah, so uh, approximate dates, approximate types of health activity or interactions with the health service and approximate locations can rapidly get you a unique match. So women are particularly vulnerable to this because the kind of information you might have at the school gate um, I know that you used to live in Bristol. Now you live, you moved to Oxford in about 2015. You had, uh, you had, you had twins in 2013 and another baby in 2017. And you look like you're in your late 30s. Um, that's often enough to get a unique match. Um, another example that people often use is Tony Blair. So Tony Blair, it was in the news when he was prime minister that he had an abnormal heart rhythm reset at a hospital in London 
and we knew the two days on which it happened because it was a news story that the Prime Minister was out of action for 36 hours. So if you look for a man of his age, resident in London, who had that type of intervention, even if you've only got in a one week, in a given one week window, the people who had those interventions at that time in that region, um, that can often be enough to get a unique match. So uh, having, uh, having achieved that unique match, if, once you know the pseudonymous identifier for that one person, you can then go and see all the other things in their health record that you didn't know. So if you were a malicious actor, if you were, um, you know, somebody in the media trying to embarrass a minor celebrity or an ex-partner, you could find out about um, sexually transmitted diseases or mental health problems or any of these other um, issues. So sending out pseudonymized data, bad idea. Very bad idea. And, and I think we have to be honest and say that it does happen sometimes. So there are many, many examples, first of all, of you know, individual creeps in GP surgeries, practice managers looking up their ex-girlfriend, looking up girls they knew at school um, and looking at their medical record or finding out where their ex has moved to. So we know that on an individual level, individual medical records are misused by individual people. Which, which is, as you say, illegal and you know punishable by all sorts of things. Yeah. They're punishable by not very much, though, actually, if you think about the disincentives. Because um, to, 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 to block people doing something, I think you should make it practically hard for them to do it maximize the chances of detection and have big penalties and then you're you know reasonably on the way um but we also know anyway that large large government data sets are also misused so you know people who if you hang out with comedians or other people in the public eye you know i've got friends who um have had tax information about them leaked to private investigators and given to the media also from police databases leaked about them um, to order for payment um, because if lots and lots of people have access to those data sets for their day-to-day -day work then the likelihood of any one of them being dodgy is quite high okay ben so you've you've led us down into the dark depths of the valley now lead us back up to the sunlit uplands of uh, what better systems are well so the first step in fixing that problem is taking it seriously so when we built Open Safely, we set out to build something that was so robust and so provably secure that people would not need to have to trust everybody who works with the data. We wanted to be able to prove trust. So we built Open Safely as a fully open source project, first of all. So all of the code for every single atom of how the platform works is all in the public domain. Everyone can see it, not just for each individual analysis, but for the platform itself. Now, that's important because it means any security analyst can go and review it and check that it really does work like we say it does. But also it's very efficient because it means that anybody who wants to improve it or augment it or critique it uh, for the individual analyses or for the platform can see it. Next, um, instead of disseminating the data, we built something called a trusted research environment. So initially in collaboration with the electronic health record software suppliers, TPP, who make the software that your GP uses to store your medical records. They've got a data center that already contains 24 million patients data. So instead of extracting the data from there, we built the platform inside their data center, literally on boxes in their racks. So the data never moves and the researcher goes to the data. Now, so far, so good. That is, in some respects, a trusted research environment like any other. And there have been a few, but unfortunately, they haven't been 
resourced or universally used so people have relied excessively on dissemination and of course with dissemination just to be clear by the way everybody signs a piece of paper making a pinky promise that they're going to be very good with it but the problem is that kind of trust and contracts approach doesn't really scale to lots and lots of users which is what we want in the data right we want more people doing research more people doing service improvement more people doing life sciences innovation in data so we need a, a solution to data access that scales to vast numbers of people being able to access the data without having to trust every single one of them uh, so we've built a trusted research environment and then thirdly we built something very very clever on top as a software layer that sits between the user and the raw data so essentially what we built is a standard set of software tools that process the raw data entered by your doctor about you. He had this prescription at this time. He had this diagnosis at this time. We built some standard data curation software tools that sit on top of that, that convert that raw data, it's about 50 or 100 billion rows of data for everyone's health records, into the kind of data set that you'd use to make a dashboard or do a research analysis where you've got one row per patient and it's do they have diabetes yes or no not every single diabetes diagnosis in their record not every diabetes referral letter not every diabetes blood test or treatment just do they have diabetes yes or no created in a very very careful way from the underlying raw data so we made a standard software tool that does that data curation act and from that single move three extremely important things follow Number one, it means that every single research group or NHS analyst group who works in the data, who does an act of cleaning up the data, doing some curation, every time they do a good job, it's sat there for everybody else to reuse. And because everybody does their data curation using these standard Python functions, Python is a programming language, that means that everybody, every other subsequent user can also understand how they did it and understand it and, and read it quickly and kick the tires and reuse it. So that's the first benefit of that standardized approach. Number two, it allows us to do a really interesting privacy move, which is because we know what your finished data set for your statistical models is going to look like because you've made it with our standard tools, we can generate an entirely randomly generated dummy data set, a completely randomly generated data set that has no disclosive information in it. You can download that, you can muck about with that and iteratively write your statistical analysis code and your dashboard code in the way that you normally would, but without being in an environment where you can interact in a completely unconstrained way with the data, with the real patient data, the disclosive patient data. So it allows people to write their statistical analysis code creatively and interactively, but without needing to have unfettered access to the real patient data. And then when they've written their statistical analysis code and it's all working fine on the dummy data, you press a button and their, their statistical analysis code gets pushed through to the real environment, runs against the real data and drops its outputs into a folder. But they never get to interact with the real data in an untrammeled way. Which I think is a really interesting model to adopt in a bunch of other contexts. I fully agree. Yeah. And it's not the only way to do it, but it's the real like Fort Knox approach that allows you to justify access. And then the third thing that we did, which is also crucial and, and vitally important, is um, normally you can't share your statistical analysis code or your data curation code because there's a risk that that itself might accidentally contain some patient data because you wrote it interactively whilst playing around with real patient data. But in OpenSafely, there's no risk of that. So you can share all your code, 
And so we do share all the code. So if you go to jobs.opensafely.org, you can see every single line of code that is executing against 58 million patients data in England, not a one paragraph description of the kinds of study it is. You can click through and see the commit ID of the GitHub repo, every single line of code. And some of those um, repositories of code will be closed today because we don't force people to open up their code repositories until they share the results of their analysis. We think it's okay for them to work iteratively behind closed doors until they share their results. However, every single thing is logged. Everything is in public uh, eventually. And that means that anybody who's anxious that your data is being misused can see exactly what's being done with your data. But also, more importantly, it's it, it's about the broader swathe of analyses where there are entities or sectors where you'd like them to be able to do some things with your data, but not other things with your data. Um, it's also, I think, very useful because, you know, our shared objective, I think, across the whole of society is we want to have more people using data to do good things, but with constraints to prevent them doing bad things. Now, we can disagree a little bit. Uh, among ourselves about what constitutes a good or a bad thing. But I think it's really powerful to be able to separate off the privacy issues from the ethical or political issues. So in the past, when people have said, oh, you know, should should commercial innovators have access to health data? You've, mi- you, you, you've been in a situation where you've mixed up two different conversations at the same time. Number one is, I don't want Google to be able to see my personal health record. And the second is I don't want Google to commercially profit from access to NHS data without the NHS taking a stake in it. In the past, those two questions were inextricably linked. But now at least you can separate them off. You can say, well, you know, we can let commercial innovators have access to data in a way that preserves patient privacy. So don't worry about that. And now separately, let's have the conversation about how does the NHS get a good deal? And I think there's also an important distinction between commercial players who are doing research into health topics like developing new drugs or whatever, let's say life sciences and biotech uh, access to health data, and let's say other commercial uh, entities, right? I think, again, a, a meaningful distinction in those in those kind of conversations, because most of the people that we uh, engage with, talk to, listen to are like, I'm, I'm happy to share my data with, with the NHS and with biotech researchers who are researching my, my condition, conditions of people like me that could that could benefit people's health, but I'm sure as hell not happy to share it with anyone who it, it has it for a different commercial purpose that has nothing to do with my health or anyone else's health. Um, and so if, I think those conversations are, are, um, are conversations we have to be having. They're reasonably nuanced. They're super important uh, because as you say, unless we have those conversations, we can't get to a point where there are lots of people doing lots of good work on that data for the benefit of, um, you know, humankind and people's health and so on. I think that's right. I think also we need to be much more thoughtful about how we partition NHS data because there are some there are some activities on NHS data which I think you actually shouldn't be allowed to opt out of at all. Like, you know, we need to know how many people are having a rheumatoid arthritis outpatient appointment on a Thursday afternoon in Scunthorpe in order to know whether we need to put on another clinic uh, every other week. You know, you to be able to plan and understand services and spot opportunities to improve quality, safety and cost effectiveness of, of the NHS, you need to be able to see what's happening. Similarly, I think there are some unambiguous research 
needs where I, I'm not sure that I personally think it should be OK for people to opt out. But I'm open to discussion on that. And I respect the fact that different people have different views. I, I think we need to have conversations about opt outs again after we've improved the privacy offer of how we work with NHS data. However, it's unambiguously clear that for um, for commercial innovation in data, there are some people who go, I don't care, get on with it. Of course you should be. And some people who say, no, absolutely not over my dead body. And for those people, we need to be able to find some way of partitioning the data. And I think, you know, our, our future health is one interesting um, window onto that where they're sequencing the data of lots of people and matching in um, or have an ambition to match in their electronic health record data. Um, you know, and I think there are lots of other interesting models around um, letting people opt in or opt out of, of those broader uses. But I think in general, we need to get much better at making the data all accessible in one place and then partitioning it thoughtfully and maintaining everybody's privacy at all times. And to be able to do that kind of work, you need to have individuals, teams and institutions whose sole purpose in life is producing platforms for other people to work in. That, you know, I, I've done a lot of um, talking and thinking as part of the review for Secretary of State on where things have gone right and wrong. And we're not hugely inclined to have a detailed public conversation about the, the organisations that have done well or poorly in this space. However, I would say the single biggest driver of non-delivery on platforms for electronic health records is that everybody who has been tasked and resourced with building them has had it as a kind of secondary or tertiary priority. You give money to academic epidemiologists for a platform, they will ship you a load of academic epidemiology papers. You give it to bits of the NHS that are interested in service analytics, principally they'll meet their own service analytic needs and the platform will be secondary give it to a busy team who've got lots of different competing priorities rather than having a clear boundary put around them and they'll get borrowed off into other things because platforms have not historically been considered high priority so when their boss is looking around going okay i need somebody to swarm over there and work on x y and z who have we got who's spare where platforms have historically been considered to be a low status low priority activity, the staff and the better staff who've been 60% FTE assigned to work on that, they get nicked. So the single most important thing that we can do to get great platforms is to recognise them as high status standalone activity and to resource and, and staff them as such. You've got to have people, teams and organisations where that's all they do. And that's how you get great platforms. And for anyone out there listening to this, without wanting to sound sanctimonious, I'm very happy to talk about how we do that at Genomics England and have uh, dozens, dozens of people and multiple tech partners dedicated 100% to building platforms for other people to use. Um, so I no, couldn't couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's. Uh... And, and I agree. I think you've done a great job. And I and I think again, it's it's that old thing of you know the first step to wanting to achieve an outcome is actually sincerely trying. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it helps. And I think the problem with platforms also is that. Because because there's been quite a long trudge of, of non-delivery, it's also become something where people feel a bit anxious about it. Or, or sort of fatigue, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. So And and where that happens, what people in organisations really want is a contract where they sign a piece of paper that says, OK, this is, now, this is now Tom's job. This is now Barbara's job. It's not my problem anymore. 
And I think you can't turn your back on it like that. It's you can't you can't buy a black box service that does everything for you. You've got to have platformologists. You've got to have a rich, competitive and collaborative ecosystem of people developing new methods embodied in openly shared code for curating data and making it securely available. And when we start doing that, then we'll start having great platforms and from great platforms come great outputs. But we cannot meet the needs of the research community, the service analytic community and the life sciences community by just emailing ever larger cuts of pseudonymized data around and getting people to sign contracts saying that they'll be very careful with it. That's not okay. Um, Ben, we're going to have to get you back onto the pod for um, more in-depth discussions on these topics. Um, but in the meantime, I'm looking forward to a, uh, a high trust, um, slick platform future where we have lots of people doing lots of good work um, in, a, in a secure and safe way to make all of our lives better. Ben, always, always great to catch up. Thank you so much for making the time. And um, we're looking forward with bated breath to the report coming out. Um, and we'll, uh, we'll look forward to talking again soon. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to the G word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you have views on these topics, if you have a suggestion for someone we should interview, then do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. And do remember, if you've enjoyed listening, that giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series and appreciate it very much. See you on the next episode of The G Word.